Hello, and welcome to the Alien Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan. And I'm John Engel, and today we're doing minute number 12, which begins with Dallas entering the mess hall and ends with Ash starting to quote some regulations. Todd Norris is here again. Yep. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about... uh, the this is the first dialogue scene that you've been here to to really to really uh, experience right um yeah and i suppose uh in terms of cinematography one of the things that might be interesting to talk about for this minute would be the fact that this movie is shot with in anamorphic widescreen and um i'm sure every film viewer is uh hip to widescreen because most uh, science fiction epics are shot in that format. And basically that's the 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio, which just means the image is 2.35 units wide by one high. So uh, um, I think one of the reasons that anamorphic widescreen was chosen to shoot this film was, well, two things. First of all, the sets themselves, as you can tell from this film, are very claustrophobic in that they have very low ceilings. Uh, you know, long corridors with low ceilings. And so a uh, a wider aspect ratio it would uh, just fits the shape of the set better and shows it off more, which Ridley Scott, being the, the visualist that he is, wants to show off what he's got. And also, since it's, uh, you know, a, a, an ensemble film, a, a cast of, what is it, seven, yeah. I think, um, there's going to be a lot of group shots, a, a, this minute here, case in point, where they're all sitting around this table. And so that shape, that widescreen aspect ratio fits uh, group shots maybe better than anything else. So Yeah, you know, we, I was watching Howard Hawks' The Thing last week, and, you know, it's shot in square aspect ratio, and it's filled with people. And it's so funny to watch how many faces he crams into this little square. And it's not particularly naturalistic, you know. it's Everybody feels very placed. But in this scene, they're all sitting around the table, and it, it feels very natural. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, you know, it was a conscious choice, and that might have been definitely part of it. And um, and we can talk about this at some other time, but probably the fact that they shot a lot of these dialogue scenes with two cameras lends to the air of naturalism as well. You know, there's a sort of a docu, docudrama quality to how a lot of these dialogue scenes are shot. Yeah, some of the frames are a little a little sloppy. Loose, I mean, you've yeah. got... You got just the, somebody's nose at the edge of the frame in one shot, and there is a sense of like uh, of the camera operator finding the shot. And uh, uh, Ridley Scott, the director of the film himself, actually operated the A camera. This is probably I can bring this up now. And more than other films that I've seen, maybe like any other film, there is a sense of discovery as you watch this movie. The camera tends to kind of hunt around and it's the kind of thing that maybe would be cut out, edited out of other films. But um, in in Alien in particular, there's a sense of the camera sort of hunting around and you see it. Yeah. As you're watching the movie, he's he's panning right a little bit. Oh, oh, I got this thing over here or I'll move down this way. Yeah. And we were talking about that a little bit last week is giving the camera a presence of its own on the set. Um, So we have talked about that a little bit, but that's. Yeah, um, we want to talk a little bit about what goes on in the. Yeah, scene there's more here. more clues here to everybody's jobs and every sure. and the hierarchy of uh, certainly the way that Parker and Brett walk into the room and yeah. Brett wants his chair back from Ash and then adds the little extra touch of 
brushing off the yeah. chair as if it's been fouled by ash sitting there, which is just so obnoxious. And of course, they're the last to the meeting yeah. as well. That's, that should be pointed out. And kind of, I think what happens at the end of this minute kind of clues us into how much, uh, what sense of duty and, and place in the crew that they have. But um, yeah, so uh, Parker and Brett enter, and Parker kicks Ash out of this, out of his chair, which Ash very willingly gives up the chair. There's absolutely no argument here at all. What does this say about Ash? What is what do we take from this? Is he being set up as being uh, kind of a pushover, kind of a, a you know? He seems decidedly of... annoyed when he gets up, though. You think he so? He seems very passive aggressive in this. I remember the first time I saw it, thinking. I mean, who's going to argue with Yafakoto to begin with? Right. But still, there is something about it felt like it's happened before, you yeah. know, and that it's a kind of just Parker being Parker and yeah, he's he, sort of tolerating him. And But I'm not sure how happy he is about it. You know? Yeah, I don't think he's happy, but he immediately gives up the seat. Yes. There's no argument at yes. all. Um, so then we're setting up uh, the dynamic of the scene here with uh, Ash does take his place behind Breton and Parker, too, which I think actually will be more interesting for the next minute. But, um, yeah, so Dallas is coming with the bad news. And what do we make of everyone's reaction to this? Well, there's a two-shot that you mentioned right. with Ripley and Lambert in the frame, right? They're both sure. sharing the frame. Well, first we, first we see Dallas and Keane. Keane, I think, I mean, he, he knows already that they're not home. But Keane is very attentive to whatever Dallas is going to say. He's right there, right in his face, staring right at him. Um, and Dallas gets this bad news, and we so we get this two shot then of Lambert in the foreground, Ripley behind her, and Lambert immediately just sinks at this news. Like this, um, we're gonna have a reason why we're not back home, and she knows it, and she just sinks and asks what kind of a transmission it is that we got that got. And Ripley seems much more businesslike. She she wants to put together the data. She's like, let's figure out what this is. What does this mean? And she's not emotional about it at all. I mean, she responds. Somewhat strongly, uh, with surprise, but she doesn't seem afraid, and she doesn't seem. But Lambert, to me, she seems like this is a sinking feeling. She has, she has a foreboding here. Do you agree? Yeah, and you wonder is that because is her biggest fear not being bad enough that we're not going home? We've been wakened in the middle of the night, and we're not where we're supposed to be, but uh, or in the middle of our cryo sleep. But is she? Yeah, does she fear? Does she fear the uh, the unknown? Does she fear the fact that this signal could be? I mean. I think, you know, if, if there's this possibility, I don't know in this world, you know, we're, we're ways in the future here. I don't know if in this world they've had extraterrestrial connections yet. Um, but if they had, wouldn't that be one of your fears going out into space? And I, I, I'm speculating that it's the one that's a nightmare scenario for her. Basically what happens in this movie is her worst nightmare. Yeah. And uh, what do you think, Todd? I, yeah, and I also just think in terms of uh, distributing traits or behaviors to different. You've know, got seven people to work with. That she's she's the she's got anxiety issues. Yes. <laughs> she she's paranoid. I mean, all those things that you just said. I think you know you're going to get one on the ship, and poor Lambert is kind of the one that just <laughs> you know, she's, better her she's, than Donald Pleasant. That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, we talked about her being the audience surrogate as yeah. well and she's the emotional she's the one that responds emotionally to everything she's just like raw emotion yeah i suppose they parker's probably the hothead mm -hmm. you know he's he reacts with anger and uh she reacts with fear right and we feel her fear i think that's part of what they're trying to set up here they want to give you give us that feeling of foreboding uh right away 
So, but without being too overt about it, we're not talking about anything directly here, but we see this person, even if we're not thinking about it at the time, if it's subconscious, we're thinking this person, there's something going on here. There's a sense of doom here. With I, yeah, we, I think we might even be thinking, in, she gripes all the time. Mm-hmm. First line, I'm cold. Oh, yeah. She complains. And yeah. I think it's interesting that we might be very quick to write her off yeah. and as the as the complainer, but uh, we're going to find out very quickly that her instincts are are more than on point. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it occurs to me, you were talking how Ripley and Lambert are framed in a two-shot, and I never thought about that. By framing them in a two-shot, it's demanding us to compare and contrast the two female characters in the story. Yeah. And Ripley, you're right, responding with cool-headedness and, and, and wanting information is definitely kind of what's probably considered a more masculine reaction, you know, like like wanting wanting information and that kind of thing where she was already like, well, you know, you can, you can sense the dread or the fear. And we had talked before about how there is already some sort of, some sort of conflict between Lambert and Ripley that is going on right from the start sure. and that plays out later. And this shot in a very subtle way sort of seems to hint at that. Maybe their two attitudes about things is what causes this friction. Well, and not knowing that she's the main character or that she, or that she will become, you know, the final the the final leader and the final person to face the alien. Uh, I just want to say a couple words about Tom Skerritt because I just found him to be, from the moment I saw the movie and every time that I watch it, I just find him to be such. He just seems like a great captain, you know. He just mm-hmm. seems like he he's cool under pressure, and he's 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 smart and he sees the angles and he seems to know interpersonally. He's reading the room, I think, very, very clearly in terms of who's saying what and who he expects to say what. And right. and and so I was always really kind of um, assured by him, which is, of course, exactly the strategy. We, we've got Ripley in the background and we think that Captain Dallas is going to be he's going to be the guy. Right. Yeah. He comes in when he when he starts to give the bad news. He does. There's something in the performance there where that he's a little bit sunken as well. He seems a little bit uh, tired when he gives this news, and you could interpret it either way. I'm sure he has his own personal feelings about this. He does not want to not be home either, but he is the captain. He also knows he's going to hear from it from the crew about this. <laughs> yeah. So you can tell he's just like, oh, here we go. I got to give this news, and all right, here's the deal, guys. And I mean, he probably also has sympathy with the rest of the guys. I mean, obviously, he feels the same way. He wants to be home. But he knows everybody, this is not anything anybody wants to be doing. But he just stays about business, and he accepts their questions. And then we'll see in the next minute how he deals with, uh, some, you know, how Brett and Parker deal with this news, which is... I was just going to say one other thing, uh, just ask Todd, just in terms of uh, the lighting in this, in this scene. Uh, it seems very natural and practical, but it's kind of soft as well, right? Yeah, um, I... I know that Ridley Scott's original intention for this movie was to have it be completely lit with available light, meaning that the lights that they installed on the set would be the light that lit the movie. And um, for for technical reasons and maybe some other reasons, that, that ended up not being possible. And um, one of the things that I can tell, just because this is what I do all the time, and when you watch movies and you try to reverse engineer it and figure out how they were lit, you can tell in this scene at around the table that the lighting is supposed to be coming from there's a light above the table and it's also bounced since the table is white it's it's the 
light from the table is supposed to be bouncing back up into their faces. But if you look uh, at the actual shadows on the wall, you can see that it's being augmented by some other light off camera at a low level, like below eye level, because the shadows are above their heads if you take a look. But it's clearly there's not enough light coming from that table light to really get enough on the actors' faces. And um, part of this is because in 1979, this is a little cinematography geek stuff to talk about here, but in 1979, the speed of the film that they shot this with, meaning its light sensitivity, film back then was just not nearly as light sensitive. Well, we don't use film anymore, but basically you needed more light in the 1970s to light films than you needed today for technological reasons. So um, just to get enough exposure on the image, they would have to light this more. So, um, But it's done in a style that feels very realistic. It doesn't look, again, the light's not coming from some studio light on a grid from above because these sets were enclosed. All yeah. the ceilings <laughs> were there. And so they had to either use lights from the set or they had to bring in floor units and sneak them off camera. And and it works it works beautifully. It does. It's very yeah. realistic. Only people like you would notice that. <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything uh, else, John? I don't think so. I think that uh, that'll probably do it for minute number twelve, unless you guys have something more to say. Um, all right. Well, that's it for minute twelve. We want to give a shout out. Uh, we have to regularly uh, we're regularly giving a shout out to Star Wars Minute. They were the creators of this format that we uh, they graciously let us borrow. Uh, so if you haven't checked out the Star Wars Minute, go to StarWarsMinute.com dot com or check them out on iTunes. And you can check us out on iTunes at Alien Minute. Or uh, AlienMinute.com is our website, and at AlienMinutePod is our uh, Twitter handle. All right, well, uh, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 13. Thanks.